A lot of exciting things happening here at Friendship Church. Uh, good morning. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Pastor Jason. I'm so excited to be up here opening God's Word with you this morning. I wanted to reiterate a few things. Um, that night at games, highly encourage you to check that out and think about coming and joining in in some fellowship. It's going to be an awesome time, uh, a great event that Pastor Sam has put together. And a few other things. Easter, I uh, just want to make sure we all know that's, that's next week, right? All right. So Easter, one week from today, as Pastor Joel mentioned, uh, we'll be doing baptisms and so the, the deadline to register for that, if, if you feel the Lord stirring in you, uh, that he's calling you to obedience through baptism, uh, we'd love for you to go to the website and fill out a form, and we'll contact you this week. We'll get together with you and get you ready for baptisms. We'll be doing them at the 1045 service here in Shakopee next week. And so yeah, if God's putting that on your heart, please, please uh, be obedient and listen to him. We'd love to talk with you about that. The other thing for Easter I want everyone to be aware of um, is that we will have the nursery uh, from zero to two years old open at both services for Easter. And uh, if, you have, if you have kids older than that, uh, we will have a family room available for you all as well in the, in the river room uh, right there. But uh, as, as far as uh, the rooms that we'll have open for childcare, it will be the nursery for both services, all right? Does that make sense? We just want to make sure everybody on the same page there. So uh, enough of that uh, housekeeping. We're excited to uh, finish our series here, The Romans Road. This is the last uh, Sunday of this installment. There's still one more. We're not done with the book of Romans yet, but um, we've, we've been looking at this section of chapters 9 through 11, and what Paul's doing in this section and is he's, he's basically answering this question of... Uh, okay, uh, God's got all these great promises. God's got this great salvation. But uh, weren't the Israelites his people? And it seems like the Israelites have rejected Jesus. So what's going on there? How can we really trust God's love? How can we trust his salvation? How can we be secure in our relationship with God if it seems like he just lopped the Israelites off and started fresh with a new group of people. That's what Paul's answering in this whole section here. And what it does is it brings up this question of salvation. Ready for a big word? This is called soteriology. You guys say that? Soteriology. So, so Paul is, he's been looking at salvation through this whole section. And what we're going to see today is, as he culminates in looking at salvation is Paul is going to look at uh, contextualizing our salvation. He's, he's going to show us that our salvation is so much bigger than just the individual being saved. That's what I mean when I say Paul's going to contextualize our salvation. He's going to help us see the bigger picture that we fit into. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? That's where we're going this morning. So with that being said, I'd love to invite you to stand if you're able as we read God's word, all of Romans chapter 11. Uh, it will be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open there as well. But we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 36. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Just would love to pray for us and would ask that you join with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would give us clear minds and soft hearts to receive what you have for us. May we see your salvation on the cosmic level, and may, as, as Paul just responded in praise there, may we also respond in praise as a result of seeing your splendor and your majesty this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. About a month ago, uh, many of you were probably here for our mission Sunday. We had our mission weekend where a bunch of missionaries uh, locally and globally came in, um, and, and we had tables out there. It was, a, it was an awesome, awesome weekend to hear about what God is doing in these different areas. We had a dinner for those missionaries um, Saturday evening, uh, right before mission Sunday, and we played this game, okay, and I loved it. Our team lost horribly, but I loved the game, uh, which is weird because I don't, I don't think it, things are fun unless you win, but that's, that's a different thing. But this game, everyone was given a, uh, a, a picture, and, and you couldn't show your picture to anybody. You, you could just look at your picture on your own, um, and, and what you needed to do was without using words, without talking... You had to figure out within your group how all of your pictures related and then line yourselves up in the correct order of the pictures. Spoiler alert, here's what it was. The picture was basically you zoomed in really close, and that was the first picture. It's like, oh, train lights or something. And then you zoomed back a little bit further, and you saw that those train lights were a part of a train. Then you zoom back even further, and you saw that that train was a part of, you know, the train was on these tracks, and there was a billboard it was passing by. And then you zoom back even further, and you see that this is all a part of a, you know, a, somebody's painting something. And you keep zooming back, and you keep zooming back, you keep zooming back, and, and you realize, oh, this is like a massive scale picture, right? You see what I mean with that? It's really cool. I wish we would have won. We didn't. We couldn't even figure it out. We... <sighs> If you were on my team, I blame you. <laughs> but that's kind of what Paul is doing here this morning in Romans 11. He's talked, like I said, he's talking about salvation. And he's been talking about salvation this whole time because he's talking about the nature of salvation, how it is, who, who it is that God saved, how he goes about saving people. And as Paul's discussing that, particularly here in chapter 11, he's, kind of, he's starting at kind of a, a close level of what salvation is. And with each section, he kind of zooms back and he unfolds a larger scale picture of what God is doing and how God is bringing salvation. 
And we, and we see that salvation is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than an individual being saved. Salvation is a cosmic thing. That God, God is working in the universe, not just in our hearts. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Sal- God's salvation is bigger than us. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to kind of zoom out with Paul as we go through uh, the, the morning here. And, and as we zoom out, what Paul's really driving at, he's driving at two things. First, he's driving at humility. He wants us to see how large God's salvation is so that we can see that we're kind of specks in the midst of that. Important specks, but specks nonetheless. So he's driving at humility. He's also driving at praise because by the time that we zoom all the way out, Paul's ready to praise God for the the majesty of the plan that he gets to see. And I pray that we'll get to praise God as well this morning. God's salvation is bigger than us. In the first section, we see that Paul shows us that God's salvation is bigger than his people, the Israelites, despite his people, the Israelites. We can see this in uh, verses 1 to 10. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to reference that. Pastor Matt hit on this last week in, uh, at the end of chapter 10, that despite God's people rejecting him, God still comes to them with open arms. They reject God and reject God and reject God, yet God still comes to them ready to extend mercy and forgiveness. He doesn't write them off. Chapter 11, verse 1, right here, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And now Paul goes on to outline why it is that God has not rejected his people. And he shows us that God's salvation, if we think God has rejected his people, it's because we don't have a large enough view of what salvation is and what God is doing. And so Paul gives us that. God's salvation is bigger than all of us. And so as he, as he shows why God hasn't rejected his people, he starts with a really quick reminder in verse 2. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. Look, look, here I am, an Israelite. God hasn't rejected me. I'm living proof that he's not rejected his people. Who is God's true people can't be determined solely on who your forefather was. Paul's showing that, saying, look, Abraham's my forefather. I'm an Israelite. But I haven't rejected Jesus. God hasn't rejected me. Whether or not you're a part of God's people isn't determined by your nationality or, or by your bloodline. Paul has demonstrated time and time again, especially in this section, that whether or not you're part of the people of God is determined by faith. It's determined by if you're trusting in Christ Jesus for salvation by faith. It's a faith that receives God's provision And that provision is culminated in Jesus Christ. Paul elaborates as verse 2 continues. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God's true people were never the Israelites as a nation, as a bloodline. God's true people have always been the ones that receive his provision by faith. God gave them the law. He gave them the covenant. Through Moses, he gave them... He didn't, even, he didn't even want them to be perfect. They just needed to follow the law. When, when they sinned, they had atonement. When they sinned, they had sacrificial system that allowed them to draw near to God. It's the people who received that and walked in that that were God's true people. The others that desecrated the altars, the others that didn't walk in that, yeah, they received those gifts from God, but they 
the, the gifts were given to them, but they rejected those gifts. God's salvation is bigger than his national people, despite the absolute failure of his national people. Paul directs our attention to Scripture to demonstrate this theme. See, the story of God's people has always followed this same pattern. God is gracious, and and he he calls a people um, to set them apart to be used for his purposes. And then a vast majority of that group of people fails, and uh, they, they don't receive what God has given them. They don't receive his call. They don't walk in the ways that God has given them. And so God responds in grace by still preserving that group of people and preserving a remnant from that group. And that remnant experiences salvation, but they're also used by God to move his purposes forward because when God has a plan, even our failure can't stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And so God is going to act no matter what we do. He's, he's going to move this thing. It's not like we can band together and try to stop what God is doing. Just ask the uh, head of construction at the Tower of Babel, all right? It just doesn't work. God is gracious to preserve a remnant and to use them, save them and use them to move his plan forward. And Paul points to uh, uh, Elijah to, to show what's going on here. Where Elijah tells God, look, hey, God, there's, no, there's nobody left. Elijah understood that this isn't a biology thing, but it's a faith and a, and a fidelity thing. Elijah was living with a whole bunch of Israelites, right? So when, when Elijah comes to the Lord and says there's no one left, he's not saying physically there are no Israelites. He's saying nobody is being faithful to you. There's, there's no one left. I'm the only one here, God. And uh, God says, well, hold on. I've got a remnant I've got a remnant that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, I'm going to use that remnant to preserve my people so that my purposes can continue. See, salvation is larger than God's people despite the absolute failure of God's people. And in verse 5, Paul says, At the present time, there is also a remnant right now chosen by grace, It's the same pattern of the same story. God's call, people's failure, God's grace that preserves people and and removes them and and fixes their failures for them. And Paul has to reiterate that this is on the basis of grace. That God didn't look at it and say, okay, this person's doing all right and that person's doing okay and, and you're kind of all right, you're better than most and so I'll preserve you guys and the rest I won't. No, this is all on the basis of grace, and nobody uh, is good enough, yet God decides in his grace to preserve a remnant. Has God rejected his people? Verse 7, Paul says, no, the failure is on the part of Israel. You see that in verse 7? What then, Paul says? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was given to them. God didn't fail. Israel failed. His people rejected him. Miraculously, 
God still preserved some. Despite God's people, despite our sin, God's salvation is bigger. See, God had a master plan to bring about the salvation and blessing of the entire world, the entire cosmos. God was bringing blessing and salvation through Abraham and through his descendants. Yet every single Bible character messed it up. Think about your favorite Bible character. I don't know who it is, but he or she really messed up. I'll just go step out on a limb there and say, I bet they messed up. David, King David, a man, I mean, if a man after God's own heart can commit adultery and murder, I don't know if there's any hope for me. Even the good ones all messed up. But God's plan of salvation is so much larger than just saving a group of people, and so he preserves a remnant group in order to accomplish his purposes. The salvation of each individual is highly important, but it also serves a larger purpose. When we zoom out, we see the large picture of what God is doing. And, and Paul's going to be driving to this point, but, but church, we, we can't look at, if you've received Jesus by faith, we can't look at our personal salvation and think that's what it's all about. It's too easy to do that sometimes. That's a very self-centered approach to salvation. Listen, God loves you. You have infinite value because you were made in the image of God. That's true. But Jesus didn't die just for you. We get into trouble when we start thinking that. Because then our salvation becomes about me. And you know what's e really easy to do then? Well, then God's going to give me all the things that I want. And God's going to give me the things that I think I deserve. And it's about me. It's about me. What can I do for you, God? Oh, how awesome am I, God? And what Paul's driving at here is, no, listen, your, your salvation is secure because the God of the universe loves you absolutely but it's even better because it's a part of this awesome thing. You get to be a part of God's purposes, a part of this cosmic thing that God is doing. Like, whew, man, you get to be like in the guardians of the galaxy, right? Like this is more than just planet Earth. Oh, man, volume three coming out. Let's go. God's salvation is bigger than his people despite his people. And Paul continues to zoom out into verses 11 to 16. And he moves from just the Israelites to the entire uh, world. God's salvation is bigger than all people despite all people. See, Paul anticipates this question uh, from the logic that he's using. He goes something like this. You can see it in verse uh, 11. He says, So I ask, did, did they, did the Israelites stumble in order that they might and so what Paul's saying here is, is did, did they kind of waver in their faith? Did God kind of make them waver in their faith so that they would fall? The implication being fall away from grace and, and be kind of cut off from God. That's the question that Paul's asking. And, um, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, people may look at that and say, okay, so, so God is sovereign. So he must have caused his own people to stumble and fall so that he could then preserve a remnant and bring salvation to other people. So, okay, let me get this straight. He abandoned his old people so that he could have new people. 
uh, that doesn't sound too great. It also doesn't sound very secure for, for my own salvation, because what if, what if he does that again? What if God decides I'm going to abandon this new people for this newer people? And I can think of at least you know, three people that are better than me. So, so I, I don't want God to do that. Paul zooms out, though, and he says, no. God took the failure of his own people. Israel failed to obtain. It was The failure was on them. The failure is on us. God took that failure, and he's the God who takes what's meant for evil and causes it for good. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul zooms out and says, look, through history, despite God's people God preserved uh, rejecting him. God preserved a remnant to bring about the Messiah. And then, and then God's people crucify and reject Christ. And because Christ was crucified, God took that failure and that opened up salvation universally to Jew and Gentile. That made salvation so much easier for the Gentiles. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were Gentiles on Paul's missionary journey that were like, Praise God we got rid of circumcision. Oh. But, but because Christ was crucified, because of the failure, God used that to universally open up salvation. Doesn't matter who your great, 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 great grandfather was, if that's Abraham or not. Salvation now became widely available to the world. Paul says that in verse 11. Through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles didn't deserve it either. Paul made that clear earlier in Romans. Gentiles didn't deserve it either. I mean, they... Israelites at least had the law given to them and, and some semblance of uh, worshiping the Lord. Gentiles were largely pagan. I mean, Gentiles were doing all sorts of crazy things. I mean, you're talking about like offering children in the fires to Molech. Right? Okay, so Gentiles certainly did not deserve this either. We're simply a part of the larger story of salvation. God used failure to magnify his grace. That's what he does. That's, that's just who he is. But the salvation of the Gentiles isn't the end goal. We haven't zoomed all the way out yet. This picture is bigger. The salvation of the Gentile, we, we even get this at the end of verse 11. The salvation of the Gentiles here in verse 11 is viewed as a means to an end. Do you see that? says, by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's not a period there. There's a comma. What does it say after that? So as to make Israel jealous. And Paul will go on in a couple of verses. In uh, verse 14, he says, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles so that I might make some of my fellow Jews jealous and they would come to salvation again. Paul is basically saying, that the salvation of the Gentiles is a means to an end. It's not an end in of itself. Do you see that here? 
It's a means to an end. Again, I need to reiterate. That doesn't mean that God, that, that we're used by God in, in the sense of, of, uh, of being taken advantage of. I'm, there's nothing to be taken advantage of when we stand before the Lord. But he's not using us in that sense. It's just that our salvation is part of this larger cosmic thing that God is doing. Doesn't that add value to our salvation? Doesn't that add value to our lives? Not take away from it? As we zoom out and we see what God is doing, that God's salvation is bigger than all people, despite all people. Salvation is is bigger than us. God has made salvation accessible to all people. We don't deserve it. Each of us, by birth and by the choices that we've made, we've rejected God. But in his grace, he still extends mercy. Despite all of our sin, God offers salvation. And that salvation is larger than us. It's, it's better than we could have thought. I think one of the things we realize as we grow in our Christian faith is how much bigger God is. You ever try to put God in a box? I have many times. And I could show you all the pieces and the shattered whatever that come from that. All right, because when we start to try to put God into a box, he tends to like to blow those boxes up. He, he doesn't like that. Okay? He does not like being put into a box. He's just like our one-year-old who doesn't like to be put into a crib. All right? Throws that head back, gets that nice arched back, could be a great high jumper. God doesn't get put into a box. And as we grow in our faith, we see that the salvation is, yes, available for us personally. Listen, we are called to know Jesus Christ personally and to receive that salvation personally and individually. Absolutely. That's Paul's whole point, is that it it's not your parents' faith. It's, it's not because you go to church. It's not because of the good things that you're doing. It's because you have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what saves us. But man, we learn that that salvation is so much bigger than us. And that's what Paul is driving at here. It's part of something bigger. And, and as Paul gets to the end there of verse uh, 16, he, uh, verse 15 and 16, I mean, he, he has these phrases that kind of don't make sense. Like, I, I, I put this in my categories. I study scripture of awaiting further revelation because I, I don't really get this. Paul says in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I mean, generally what he's getting at is, uh, look, this thing's bigger than you guys. Uh, again, the sal salvation, their rejection of the Israelites means salvation for you guys. That's awesome. Now, if they accepted it, how much greater would it be? That's what Paul's getting at there. I don't know the exact, maybe it's because we're zoomed out a little bit further and can't, things get blurry, but I don't get it. 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That one's a little bit easier that, that the Israelites themselves were already holy. They were the first fruits, and so they'll continue to be holy. And, and that means that, that the Israelites, be, because they are God's chosen people, uh, everyone can experience blessing still through them. Again, this is just a large cosmic grand scheme of salvation. It's part of something bigger. And Paul gets to this implication, though. And this is, I mean, this is why uh, we've been talking about this the whole morning, all right? This is why you've been sitting there listening to me ramble on about Paul, salvation, soteriology, uh, laughing at the cheesy jokes. This is why uh, we're, this is what we're driving at here. This is the command in chapter 11. This is the only command in chapter 11. And it's in verse 18, uh, and it's reiterated in verse 20. Paul says, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud, but fear. You see, the, the, the church in Rome had a majority of Gentile Christians. At some point, um, before the church was, was uh, really established, a lot of Jews were, were kicked out of Rome. They got into trouble for some riots at uh, the temple. So a bunch of Jews got kicked out of Rome. Uh, you had Gentiles there who uh, were, were pretty, they were Gentiles, but in their theology and in the way that they did church, they were pretty Jewish. So you had, you had a bunch of those types of Gentiles. And you also had Gentiles who didn't really care that much about the Jewish law. And, and they were kind of doing their own thing. And that's kind of who Paul's addressing here. Um, he's saying, look, Gentiles, yeah, you've received salvation. Absolutely. God loves you. Uh, remember where that salvation came from. All right, because there was, there was probably some controversy going on with Gentiles. And I could, I could imagine it. I could see it because I see it right now in our culture. I could imagine that there were Gentiles who were saying, man, I'm, I'm just going to rebel for the sake of rebelling. Right? I, all, this, all this Jewish stuff, I'm going to do the exact opposite of it because I got freedom in Christ. What do I need any of this Jewish stuff for? This is a, this is a Christian thing. The, 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 we, we followed. The Jews had their chance. They missed out. See, that's, that's the thinking that was leading into this strife and, and this conflict that was happening. And, and I think what Paul's addressing is he's like, whoa, hold on. Gentiles, hold on. You are guests. You're not the owners. You're guests. Look, you are wild olive trees. All right? This thing, the, the, the Jewish people, the Jew, this is a cultivated thing. Psalm 1, planted by streams of water. Like God transplanted a tree and put it where it could thrive and nourish. That's the Jewish people. Gentiles, man, so you are like this. Quite honestly, you are this like, freak of nature type thing that somehow you're getting grafted in. Man, you're, you're not the original thing. And Paul, Paul basically says, how dare you? How dare you have the arrogance to say that it's about you? How dare you have the arrogance to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebel against this thing just for the sake of saying, yeah, no, we don't need that Jewish thing. Again, it's easy to see that because I see it in our culture now. Where we want to claim uh, freedom in Christ so much 
so much that we want to rebel against anything. Now, there are things that are sinful in this world that we want to say no to, absolutely. And we want to speak out against, absolutely. We don't want to adopt an attitude that says, I'm going to show off my freedom in Christ by rebelling against everything for the sake of doing that. That's Paul's warning here. Don't become arrogant because your salvation isn't a means to your own personal gain. It's not a means to your own personal end. Salvation, your salvation is a means to a larger end, to God's end, to God's plan of what God is doing. Contextualize your salvation. See yourself. See the big picture. See that you are a speck, an important speck, a highly valuable speck, but see that you are a speck in that plan. That's what Paul is getting at here. And if we don't, it leads to things like being judgmental. Also leads to a lack of concern for the lost. Thinking, oh, well, God must have seen something good in me. Uh, you know, it's not as if God went, um, Israel's not really working out for me. Let's see, are there any other groups of people? Oh, this, this group of people looks like they might work. Oh, they're responding a little bit better to me. Let's go with them. It's not how it worked. Don't get prideful, Paul says. Salvation is based on grace alone, and it's for God's purposes, not our own. If you know Jesus, don't fall into the trap thinking, I got this Christian thing down. Okay, we've, we've been called by God to respond to Jesus by faith. Okay. When I put my faith in Jesus, it's because I recognized that I was a sinner who could not save myself and I needed him to save me. Does anyone have an experience like that? Yeah, two of you? When I put my faith in Jesus, that's what I recognized. And I don't graduate from that. It's not as if I put my faith in Jesus. Great, he lifted me back up so I can walk again. It's not as if, Jesus, thank you. You, you, you kind of got me there. You got me going. I'll take it from here. God preserves just as much as he saves. He has always preserved a remnant. And Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure that he who started a good work will finish it in you. And that's a part of this prideful thinking that Paul's addressing here is he's saying, no, don't for one minute think that God saw some sort of goodness in you that made him think, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I'll save Jason. He's, he's pretty cool. No. Don't for one minute think that. Don't for one minute think, well, because God saved me, then, uh, yeah, that must certainly make me uh, above everybody and, and better than everybody. And it's Paul's saying, no, this, this is a real temptation. And Paul's addressing it. And he's addressing it by reminding us of our place. He's addressing it by reminding us of where our salvation fits in God's plan. It's a part of this large 
cosmic, grandiose view of salvation. Does God care about every single individual? Does God care about you? Yes. Do you have infinite value because the God of the universe calls you his own? Yes. And still we are but a speck on this beautiful, glorious tapestry of salvation. See, this, this grandiose view of salvation is the perfect antidote to keep us humble. And Paul goes on. He zooms out further in verses 26 to 32 and shows us that God's salvation is bigger than all people, despite all people, and will one day culminate in his people. And so Paul zooms out again and he shows, hey, the plan's coming full circle. God's not done with his people. He's given them over to the desires of their heart for a time, partially, so that he can weave them back into salvation. And I, yeah. There's only a couple of things. In the interest of time, we can only press into a few things. There's, there's a ton here. But one of the things is, I think we're zoomed out so far at this point that we can see the big picture, but some of the specifics we can't really see. And that's, that, that's this. This idea here in, in verses 26 through um, 32, where, where Paul gets to the point of saying, and in this way all Israel will be saved, that there's this partial hardening, there's, there's these things going on. And I think we've zoomed out so far that we kind of know what's going on, but we don't know all the specifics of what God's plan is at this point. We're, we're, I mean, we're at the 10,000-foot level here. Okay, so we've zoomed out so far that we can't fully know precisely what's going on here. But Paul's most likely talking about, when he says all Israel is saved, he's talking about biological Israel, not the true spiritual Israel. So he is talking about the descendants of Abraham here. So we get that. But, but what he means when he says all of them will be saved is a bit of a mystery. Most likely it means that Paul is envisioning a time when many Jewish people will turn and accept Jesus is their savior, and in addition to that, he envisions a time in which the biological descendants of Abraham will in some way experience the physical fulfillment of all that was promised to them. Again, we don't know the exacts of that. That's what it seems like Paul is saying here. But it doesn't matter what the, what the precise meanings of those things are, because the general idea helps us see, once again, this thing is so much bigger than us. That, that this plan is so much bigger than us, and that to answer Paul's question, no, God has not rejected his people. He's taking all of these threads, weaving them together, zooming out so that we can come back and bless his people. In this way, all Israel will be saved. In some way, his people will be blessed and saved because of this cosmic plan, this thing that God is doing. That again helps us see the grandiose view of God's picture of salvation. And however all that works itself out, we know this, and I want you to lean in and listen closely because you're going to want to hear this one. You ready? God is not done with his people. He's not done with the people that he has called, clearly so. We can trust that God is not done with you. What Paul shows us, I mean, you, you could look at the history of the Israelites and say, man, <laughs> man, 
The book of Judges, they got it wrong. Uh, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, they got it wrong. Woo, missing their own Messiah. Airball. God is not done with his people. God is not done with you. Whatever you are facing, whatever hardship you are going through, whatever diagnosis you just heard about, whatever temptation, whatever sin, God is not done with you. Paul envisions the Israelites turning to Jesus in droves. Turn to him this morning. And Paul ends here. We've zoomed out, we've zoomed out, we've zoomed out. God's salvation is so much bigger than us. In verses 33 to 36, we can't help but praise him. Finally, we see the big picture of salvation. It's always been bigger than you and me. It's always been bigger than the remnant of God's people. It's always been bigger than the Gentiles being grafted in. It's always been bigger than all of Israel being saved through this whole process. It's always been about God and his glory. That's where Paul lands. On this beautiful, glorious tapestry of salvation that screams God's glory to the universe. We get the privilege of being specks on that. And we get the privilege of praising God for all that he is doing because we've zoomed out and we've zoomed out and we've zoomed out. And you know what, church? We've, we've zoomed out as far as we can go and we still can't comprehend it. Look at how Paul closes this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I just invite you to pray a prayer of praise with me. God, you are so much greater than we can imagine. God, you are so much bigger, we confess, than we often view you. God, you are doing things that we can't even comprehend. You are weaving stories and, and taking nations and people groups and individuals and, and causing them all to weave together for your glory. And we praise you, God. We thank you that we are a part of that. We thank you for the privilege of joining in that. And we pray that you would keep us from viewing it as something just for us. God, may you fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. May you allow our hearts to begin to comprehend the vastness and the greatness of the salvation that you have made known to the world. We want to offer ourselves in praise to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. And in a moment here, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to uh, remember what Christ has done in communion. And I just in, I encourage you, as we, we, we ask every Sunday that we examine our hearts before we come to the table. So examine your heart, see if there's any sin that is unconfessed or sin that's in need of uh, repenting from. But as you examine your heart, I want to help focus that. Is there any selfishness in your heart, especially as you look at God's salvation? Have, have, you, have you in any way been arrogant towards others, prideful towards others? Or in any way have you been uh, arrogant about your own merits in the Lord? I encourage you to confess that before the Lord so that you can view the vastness of his salvation and receive from Jesus at the Lord's table this morning. So the band will play a song and uh, I encourage you to reflect and worship. And as you're ready, you can make your way down the aisles and over to the table nearest you to receive the elements. And when the song's over, I'll come back up and walk us through communion.